The Camby Report was produced and recorded on the traditional territories of the Quiquitlam, Mississaugas of the Credit, Anishinaabek, Chippewa, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat peoples. It's Friday, October 13th, 2023, and there are 1,100 days left until the Vancouver Municipal Elections. This is the Camby Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. Good afternoon, everyone. What is happening to the world? I mean, it seems like everything is crazy, and Vancouver seems to have like decided to try and get in on the action, but it's like just sort of doing so in in the kind of funny way of like grabbing like a tray full of beers and then blindfolding yourself and then walking out into a crowded restaurant. Great analogy. Like, great great imagery there, Matthew. I mean, so much has happened since we recorded last week and every week for the last two months, right? <laughs> yeah. They're in the lost episodes. They go they go into a can. We are recording weekly. I'm just too lazy to edit and publish them. That's what's happening here. Yeah, they're, they're for our $1,000 a week Patreon subscribers. Patreon.com slash report. Yes, Patreon.com slash report. your source for citizen journalism on the politics of Vancouver and Metro Vancouver and the environ cities of the environs of Vancouver. Support us. at the $100,000 level, Ian and I come to your house and live in it for a weekend and just follow you around talking to you about municipal politics. It was tough to get the wife and kids to agree to that one, but then I said, you know, it's a year's salary based on what I work at, so. (laughs) Patreon.com slash Camry Report. Moving on! We have so much to talk about today. The news that is breaking today. I didn't actually watch the press conferences, but Surrey is suing the province. They have launched a judicial review to say, we are going to keep the RCMP because this story will not fucking die. Yeah. So, like, Brenda Locke was elected on a campaign to bring the RCMP back to Surrey that was really about whether or not her predecessor lied about getting his foot run over by a car. Importantly, she got 29% of the vote to the foot guy's 28%. So, democracy has spoken. Democracy has indeed spoken. In the intervening months, the Minister of Public Safety, Mike Farnworth, has come out and said that despite what the voters of Surrey, quote-unquote, decided in the last election by a margin of 1%, which is not a majority, he would not be permitting the Surrey police force to leave Surrey, uh, not undefended, but return to the oh-so-gentle grip of the RCMP. There is now a a petition that has been launched in, in court in BC to rule by the city of Surrey to rule that the um, the minister's decision was basically outside the powers of the minister, which is b- bold, I guess. Uh, I guess the, the charitable way to put this lawsuit is that they are arguing, arguing that according to the letters of the Community Charter and the Police Act, the power for policing, which constitutionally exists in the province's hand, has been delegated to the city and through these uh, legislative instruments. And because the minister did not follow the letters of those law in their view, they cannot overrule this decision. In response, Mike Farnworth has said that this is such a waste of time, money, and resources that could be spent on doing the transition. He's frustrated the city has not accepted the $150 million check the province has put forward to them. And on Monday the province will be introducing legislation to, I'm presuming, possibly overrule this lawsuit, but also, like, completely clear up. Yeah, well, (laughs) it'll clear up in the future so that this never happens again. And I think he also said it's going to solve this, finally. 
I can imagine being like just you're you get in your your legislative age you're, you're sitting in the office in the morning uh, and like kind of the minister walks in with like a dark cloud over the throws down a newspaper I don't know where he's gotten a newspaper in this day and age but throws down the newspaper it's like no this ends <laughs> and then your entire weekend is ruined my favorite part of Farnworth's quote is, this legislation won't be a surprise to the city of Surrey. We've discussed our intentions publicly over the past few months and city staff have been thoroughly briefed on its contents. So when Brenda Locke comes out on Monday and says, this is an outrage, how could they do this? He can say, we told you we were doing this because we told you to go back to Surrey Police Service mm-hmm. and you just won't listen. Yeah, my, my favorite part of the petition is that part where they say that we... A certain amount of money has been put forward in the announcement in July that occurred. Since this happened, we have done nothing. That's not true. They hired lawyers to write a petition to complain in the court. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that... mm, I feel like that's, like, a very spicy flavor of nothing. Like, it's it's not the thing that you were supposed to do. Like, it's, it's not even... It's not even like going and getting beers, putting the blindfold on, and then running out into the crowd. It's like going and, like, doing something else. Like, (laughs) carving a small chainsaw statue, and then throwing it by catapult. It's different. It's different, and it's not helpful. Matthew, as someone who practices law, now with your own firm... There's your little chance to do pitch. Thank you. <laughs> Naylor Law Office at naylor.law, N-A-Y-L-O-R dot law. If you are looking for a civil lawyer, criminal lawyer, or need help with an administrative tribunal in the province of Ontario, please visit my website at N-A-Y-L-O-R dot law. What prospects do you see for the city here, assuming that Monday's legislation doesn't you know, moot this entirely, which it probably will. The city is going to lose, like, this battle. Like, there, there is no prospect for the city to win here. I suppose the earthquake could come and collapse on the legislature, like, cause the legislature to collapse, and that might cause an election to get a different government that would change their mind. The polls, but, though, do suggest the NDP would win a stronger majority, if anything, right now out here. So, Yeah, but it would be, like, different people, sure. and, like, they're just not going to win. Like, that, that is the, the long and short of this whole situation. They, they won't be able to do the thing that they want to do and said they were going to do but had no prospect of actually being able to bring about the resolution of. Man, I'm just so glad there aren't more pressing issues facing the people of the city of Surrey right now than continuing this fight. Yeah, no, there's, there's no reason to focus on other things or yeah, it's, it's the Surrey is perfect in every way and was so good with the RCMP and I don't know why anyone would have wanted to... Actually, to be honest, I don't know why anyone would have wanted to change it. It's, like, quite expensive, and I'm not sure it was broke enough to need fixing. But now that it's been refixed or broke, just, just leave it alone. Leave it alone. Speaking of trying to fix things that are broken, Teresa O'Donnell, the chief planner of the city of Vancouver, is out. The city had announced that her term has concluded... But we got no further details about whose decision this was and where she's going next. I, I just like it's time to like queue up another one bites the dust because it feels like we're going through planners at a kind of alarming rate. It's been four in ten years. That's too that's a lot. Yeah. That's the new interim head of planning is Doug Smith, who is previously the deputy general manager of planning. O'Donnell I remember her coming on because it was only two years ago and we were doing this podcast and I remember Gil Kelly leaving and I had this like rumor that I couldn't quite prove that he had not spent enough time in the city of Vancouver and nothing was getting built under him. So there was a lot of frustration there. It seems Mm -hmm. like O'Donnell came in as a breath of hope, but 
mm-hmm. two years crushed her, or she was unable to defeat the crushing apparatus that is the planning department of the city of Vancouver. And as many people will know, the city is not built much more or become more affordable in the meantime. No, I do remember we did a Wellerman reskin on that one. You're right. Yes. <laughs> so apologies for not having a song this time. The next time city next, you know, city council, if you could be so courteous as to let us know about major staffing decisions in advance, we will prepare musical accompaniment for it. One of the positive things that have come forward in the city of Vancouver, though, is we talked on the last episode that we released about the missing middle vote coming up and that has passed. It's not a, in some ways, it's a massive reform to the city. In many other ways, it's just like long overdue. This moves the city from allowing duplexes and laneway homes everywhere to uh, four to eight units, depending on the lot by right. Great. It also reduces the maximum size of single-family homes to further incentivize building those multi-units. Peter Meisner, councillor, says that he has heard there's like 500 applications in the queue to move forward on this, which would be fantastic if true. But city staff have largely said there'll be like a couple hundred a year, but not transformative. Do they mean a couple hundred like applications that would each be like, like that would be like 2,000 homes a year? That's what I was trying to figure out. I'm not totally sure. I think it's like Like 200 applications a year. That would mean like a thousand homes a year. Which okay, all right. I mean, that's not that's not terrible. It's certainly not enough. Like especially given like the national government's actual goals for Vancouver's population. Like I feel I feel like there isn't a lot of communication between the levels of government on what what is going to be happening in Canada over the next couple of years because like the decisions that Christia Freeland's government has been making are are like going to cause the like, huge demographic changes that do need to be planned for on a local level like unless they actually want to go just full middle canada plan and like transform prince rupert you know fort athabasca and flinflon into major metropolises yeah they should adopt Keir starmer's new plan for labor which is to build towns again uh of georgian uh townhomes and row homes to accommodate people in britain which is like fine except and he's planning to do a lot of it on like old parking lots but hmm. yeah it's kind of interesting you know we'll come we'll come back when we talk about the housing accelerator fund money that's not sure possibly coming on how there there is some coordination but it's insufficient mm-hmm. and there's more to come from the province in theory on housing this fall legislative session like, I, the, I think the biggest thing is that the federal government has not done enough to make it clear to citizens and voters at, in their capacity as municipal residents that, like, growth is good and also and growth is good, is needed, and it's happening. So, like, stop voting for people who are opposed. Like, King Canute cannot hold back the tide. They can't. They're not going to. Like, so drown if you want, but or plan. Speaking of planning, Ken Sim has a plan on housing. He released this this week with ABC's majority behind him basically saying, here's the motion we're bringing forward. This is our housing plan that, you, you know, you remember the last election when we wondered where Ken Sim's housing plan was? It turns out you just had to wait an extra year for it to actually be released after the election. I mean, better late than never, I guess. This is a seven-point plan that has kind of underwhelmed everyone. Some of this is positive, I think. The first step is to accelerate the 26 village areas that are defined in the Vancouver plan, possibly including pre-zoning them. So this would be up-zoning a lot of different areas of the city to allow for townhomes and low-rises in different like key intersections pretty positive i mean that like that's good and i just maybe this isn't like precisely the place to state it but it is it used to be that the appropriate place to put a 
to put a apartment building was often arterial because like the the single family homes where only one family lives should be on the arterial because only one family gets affected by arterial traffic as opposed to like 40 families who are living in an apartment building which should be protected makes it more livable more desirable and who knows well once they ban cars matthew will be solved although that's not going to happen under this city council one of the challenges i know city hall is looking at with this approach to pre-zoning is it really undercuts a fundamental part of the vancouver model of housing development which involves these it, it involves selling zoning basically where they negotiate deals with developers to say all right you want to up zone to what we've said should be built there how much money are you going to give us to let you have that through development cost charges and community amenity contributions and there's some like you know basis that they try to do that on but it's all kind of fuzzy math and has been a focus of criticism for years because it seems like accurately like it's selling zoning and and this is a bad idea Tehran has basically been doing this for years and it's it's not great it's it's invites corruption it creates a very poorly planned city and it doesn't encourage like development in a sensible way. So the city is apparently talking with the province about amending the Vancouver charter to find a different way to pull money from developers because, you know, we always have to have growth funding growth and we'll come back to that again. The second part of Ken Sims plan, they want to harmonize the city's building code with the BC building code, which is pretty positive. It's kind of, like I see the value in having some unique things to try things. It's the same value of having like the Vancouver charter be different than how the rest of cities are run, but it also creates barriers to just building things easily. If you have to build them different in Vancouver than Burnaby. Yeah. I mean, the, the real obstacle to development is our incredibly long developments approvals process. If we could harmonize our development approvals process to make it comparable to the other cities in the region, that would be uh, an achievement. They're not going to do that, though. They are going to review the shadow impact guidelines. Uh, this followed a previous announcement that they are also doing a review of how much the view cones are affecting housing. So there'll be some look at, you know, are we forcing buildings to be too short or otherwise too small? I mean, there's aesthetic I mean, reasons for these. We have been pro-shadow on this podcast for, for a, a long time, ever since Patrick Condon you know, was dumb in public. So it'll be nice to actually have some solid numbers on both of these impacts on housing as well, because the view cone debate especially gets tiring with people being like, this is stopping housing in the city and people being like, it's a trivial impact and seeing the mountains is nice. And then people point out, I don't care if you could see the mountains from these six arbitrary spots that make no sense. So study them. Sure. They are going to expand certified professional program that the city has that will allow more engineers and architects to work in the city, I guess. I don't fully understand this one, but it does sound like it's just trying to make sure we can have more people do get the buildings built. I mean, good. I'm not sure that that's the level of, of, of labor that we actually are having a problem with. I actually thought it was building trades that we have are, are having a problem recruiting, but I don't know. Who knows? They're also going to look at increasing the maximum allowable floor plate size for towers. This would allow more housing to go up in residential towers. Mm -hmm. Number six, this is possibly the most substantive one aside from the village areas is to look at increasing housing and mixed-use density around SkyTrain stations that are underutilized. So Nanaimo, 29th Ave, Renfrew, and Rupert, while also trying to protect the industrial lands around those. Which is something that I think everyone who has looked at increasing density in the city of Vancouver has spotted. It's like, there are these four mm -hmm. major SkyTrain stations that have single-family homes all around them, and like, come on. Yeah, it's kind of your Vancouver urbanism starter kit like argument. You know, just a trip to Nanaimo Station and be like, where is everything? So um, the Greens came back on this one and said, this is great, but like there's no money for the infrastructure. Like there aren't the sewer and water structures there to make 29th Ave Station a Brentwood 
level of development. And I say that because Ken Sim referenced Burnaby as the model he wants to copy for Burnt Vancouver in terms of developing mm. these areas. I will give, I know people roasted Fry a little bit for being this, you know, stereotypical green anti-development there. In the responses to the stuff on Missing Middle that we just talked about, he said, we, we really need to be more ambitious because like my area in Strathcona is already moderately dense. We should be going harder here. So he wants to see more apartments in Strathcona, I guess. No, it, it's, no. It was a weird comment. I just, it's not the worst. He just wants everything like, to be more ambitious. He wants apartments everywhere, but also not towers at 29th until they can afford to put water and sewer infrastructure in. Well, yeah, but now that we have a corruption-based planning system, like <laughs> under this plan, we can like bribe your way to the top. It's oh, no, just... we, we've had that plan since the <laughs> 90s. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> They're actually hoping I, to move away from it by going into pre-zoning. I mean, admittedly, I think Vancouver's planning process may have been corruption-based kind of since, from the inception. <laughs> <laughs> since the CP rail. Yeah. And finally, as part of Ken Sim's ambitious housing plan, it is not actually that ambitious because most of this has been underway in some form or another, they are going to write a letter to the province saying, keep up your short-term rental, your Airbnb restrictions and enforcements we applaud that very much and there was rejoicing and dancing in the streets so it's it's not overall terrible nothing is explicitly bad yeah the floor plate size one i actually think might be the most consequential because it's either floor plate size or or pre-zoning that's going to be the most consequential to me because it's both of those are are like meaningfully changing how how easy it is to get buildings built and and how much you can put in them. Yeah, I'm interested to see what the other councillors bring forward to amend this if anything. Like this all seems like stuff that Christine Boyle in one city will have no problem going. Sure, fine. We mm. would we would do some more things and other things, but this this is kind of like Vancouver consensus urbanism at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of campaign promises, the Thais, Jen St. Dennis, and Michelle Gamage have mm -hmm. put out some accounting on how the 100 cops and 100 nurses promise is going. And we could say that they are just over 50% of the way there. Yes. We... We, we could say that. We could also that say they're 100% of the way they were actually going to go. Yeah, well, I mean, I feel like the nurses' union really missed out on an opportunity in the last election. <laughs> because apparently, you're, the, the ABC was for sale. And the police union was very happy to pick up the tab on that one. And it is paying dividends. Because 100 new... Cops have indeed been hired, which is, has basically eliminated all the shortfall, f shortfall in quotation marks, from the hiring freeze that existed under Kennedy Stewart. Um, for like six months. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It, it, like, hooray. On the other side of the ledger, they have hired nine and a half full-time equivalent mental health care professionals. So the pledge was 100 nurses and 100 cops in every car 87 88 to run around and deal with mental health crisis and In fairness, and it's a hundred and less than how 10. many full-time equivalents there were going to be it could be a hundred nurses each of them working like four hours a week vancouver coastal health has said they're now looking to hire about 58 in total staff and specialists they have noted that mental health nurses are not actually a thing that they have they have nurses and they have other kinds of support workers like social workers, community liaison workers, peers, and other disciplines who deliver mm -hmm. care alongside nurses, and we'll be hiring those. So, hmm. no real shocker here. Yeah, it's almost like the policy was poorly thought out. Oh, I'm reading a police abolition book right now, and so mm. we could be very angry at this, but instead, let's talk a little bit more about housing. Staff have suggested that one of the big housing projects under Kennedy Stewart 
be amended. This one was about having housing and rental buildings built for people in moderate incomes. Mm. The program had originally set that to develop one of these buildings, you had to cap rent at a median renter income in the city, and you could not increase rent between tenants. Because of these two restrictions, staff have judged that that might be why none have started construction. There have been 70 of these projects approved, which represent just under 10,000 units in total, 8,000 of those market, 1,100 of those below market. But yeah, nothing, nothing has even like broken ground from this project, which is a pretty abysmal failure on it. Like, I, I feel like they were trying to do too many things at once here. Like, Missing Middle is about creating an urban fabric. And I think, and by creating what is effectively the most desirable form of apartment, like, unless it's a fucking penthouse on, like, the 80th floor or whatever, they maybe shouldn't have expected the most desirable form of apartment to be affordable as well. Like, median. So, staff have said to solve these issues... They are going to recommend, I believe council already took these up, change those restrictions. So instead of capping rents to incomes, they will now be set at 20% below citywide average rents. And instead of vacancy control effectively existing, uh, landlords could increase up to 20% below the current average. So they could increase rents in line with the market, but they would still have to stay below. Uh, one estimate says this would increase the rent in one of these projects from $1,600 a month for a two-bed to about $1,800 right now. Granted, there are zero that exist at $1,600 a month, and maybe we'll get some Damn, now. There will, there will be zero that exist forever, because it's not going to happen. Well, from the dynamics at council and what they're trying to do to the dynamics behind council's closed doors, two rulings have come out of the integrity commissioner's office of vancouver following complaints by mayor ken sim against Mm -hmm. i don't know de facto leader of the opposition christine boyle i guess adrian carr would probably be a like leader of the opposition given her caucus is bigger but like whatever leader of the third party christine boyle it's It's not not a parliamentary parliamentary yeah and the greens don't oppose things they, they these days they do, but it doesn't matter. Yes, that, that's true. They they only they only oppose development. <laughs> so these these are ridiculous, both of them, frankly. And I don't say that because I'm like personally more inclined to support Christine Boyle, but just like the idea of the mayor filing a conflict of uh, code of conduct complaint against a sitting councillor never goes well. Uh, Justin McElroy had a tweet flagging how many times this has happened across the province and like only one mayor really got off well for it. And I think that was Brad West, but I wasn't 100% sure. Usually it's just like sign of a like horribly acrimonious city council. In this case, it just seems petty. So I feel, okay, this is like one of those situations where like all politics is kind of local and and city council is kind it's, it's a very small village. Like, it's a very small place that you work, especially, like, the actual political staff that's working in the City Hall proper building. Everyone has to... Like, you don't have to see each other, but, like, all their offices are, like, in a hallway. So, like, you run into people pretty often, and, like, these were related to tweets that Christine Boyle made respecting staff that the, the the second one anyway the successful one staff that the mayor had hired calling him the, this particular staff member a bully and attack dog and linking him to anti lgbtq plus governments it's like christy boyle that's not not her best moment for sure i don't think but also perhaps a bit of an overreaction. I can I can understand being loyal to people in your office. I just think this is like petty children stuff on both sides. 
Yeah, well, the first complaint that Boyle was cleared on, she had made some comments following an in-camera vote around the city's living wage policy. And we talked about this a year ago or whenever it happened. We didn't know how people had voted, but we knew that the city way city hall had agreed to change its living wage policy to basically make it a floating average over five years rather than try to mm -hmm. absorb that high inflation rate over a year. Boyle, I guess, and the requirement is because they did it in camera, none of the councillors are supposed to talk about their vote publicly. Mm -hmm. So Boyle went to the city's legal department, got advice. She did her best and figured out what she could say. And so she mm -hmm. went to a speech on May 1st, a May Day speech, said the living wage is good for people. It means worrying less, blah, blah, blah. Since the decision to kill the living wage, I want to tell you I've been so angry and I fiercely disagree. So she didn't say I voted to keep the policy, but it was pretty clear she voted to keep the policy. And that's why there was a complaint against her. Or that's mm -hmm. what the basis of the complaint was. But I, it's like... Does it matter? Are you surprised the person who talked about a living wage for like most of her political career voted for a living wage program like and then wanted to tell a labor group like fuck off? <laughs> yes. And that like that one I have a very little time for. The second one does seem petty. And like I think Christine Boyle leaves herself open to these kinds of complaints sometimes because she is a little petty on Twitter. I'm not like the hugest fan of Twitter. Sorry. I stopped using it. Oh. It is a very good idea. Yeah. Delete your account, Christine. I know you're a politician. Just do it. There's there's no one other ways to get your it. message out. Yeah. Come on our podcast. We're the number one political podcast in the city of Vancouver and its environs. Oh, yeah. And the second complaint, the integrity commissioner did find that Boyle crossed the line by alleging that the one member of Ken Sims' staff had bullied people as head of communications with Jason Kenney. And, but they noted that Boyle had already apologized and pinned that apology to her profile, which is what Ken Sim was demanding she do anyway, in which case the commissioner went, well, I have no you know, sanctions to levy here. Seems like you all worked it out without me anyway. And moved mm -hmm. on. Yeah. Great use of this person's time. Like, yeah, it's almost like having meaningful conversations with people in the real world might allow you to generate empathy for one another and not get formal processes involved. Ugh. We've referred to Christine Boyle as the leader of the opposition on city council, and apparently at least one group agrees. That would be the Vancouver District Labor Council, which has finally decided that either creating councils that are so multi-party, ad hoc, rainbow coalition-y, or are dominated by parties that do not agree with their agenda, are it's not winning strategies for achieving the policies they want. So they have decided to back one city alone. Yeah, it's it makes sense from their point of view. I mean, if I'm in COPE or... The Greens, I'm going to be mad right now. Like, I think there's some people who are still around Vision Vancouver for some reason, deluding mm -hmm. themselves that it might move forward. Speaking of forward, apparently Forward Together still exists. I've seen a couple of Kennedy Stewart newsletters that they're going to keep trying to do something with that vessel. But I think this is smart from the Labor Council just saying, no, we, we've, we, we fucked up the last two years, the last two elections. Rainbow coalitions don't didn't work let's put all our energy into the basket that seems like it actually has some momentum and represents in the most clear way the values they are arguing for so mm -hmm. great news for one city the only other one who i'd like no one no one else has strength on council these or in the political realm like i think cope got some got some school board trustees elected this time and like the greens exist but but like everyone who's running cope like thinks that the VDR, like the VDLC are on like effectively the fascist wing of the labor movement. Well they're just too pro developer like, cuz they endorsed Vision at one point. Oh god, endorsing a party that wins, we must remain pure by losing every election for the last 20 years. They won one and subsequently destroyed themselves. Yeah. Yeah, because of that issue. Because 
because winning requires eventual compromise, and that's just antithetical to the people who are running Cope. Anyway, I look forward to watching Christine Boyle's mayoral campaign in three years. Like, I do do kind of feel like we're heading in that direction. Like, it's... Boyle versus Sim will be, like, an actual meaningful choice. And if it's Boyle with one city and Sim versus ABC, it's, like, two parties having an actual conversation on the issues of the city rather than, like, I am here, too! The The last campaign that we have, we might actually get, like, a political campaign and a debate that is worthy of the city that we are trying to be. All right. Well, beyond the city we're trying to be, there's the region. And recently, Metro Vancouver decided they don't have any money, possibly because of all of the money they sank in the North Shore water treatment plant that we talked about and the scandals going on for that. Those are still ongoing, and there's like a billion-dollar deficit in that project, I believe. So they need to make up some money. And you know what the worst way to make up money is, Matthew? It's to charge property owners like me additional property taxes. You got to use growth to fund growth. So they have decided to put it on the backs of many of the different developments that will be going around the city. And they have increased a bevy of cost charges relating to water, liquid waste, and a new parks charge for Metrovan. One analysis says by 2027, when these are fully implemented, every new apartment in the city will face fees going from 11000 to 14000 more than they cost now. So instead of paying $6,000 for a unit in fees to Metrovan, you will pay 21000 per unit. That's fucking nuts. That's how you like- make housing affordable. Yeah, this won't have a chilling effect on development at all. But that's... I'm not going to talk specifically about the policy here, mostly because I have been launching a law firm and didn't do my homework this week. But I want to talk about the broader implications of how we have attitudes respecting growth. And, and that is why I think we ha- we have to have a couple of... of premises that we accept here. One, taxes disincentivize the thing they tax. Like fundamentally, if you if you tax if you tax carbon, people use less carbon. If you tax income, like it's kind of the exception, but like because income is so fundamentally desirable, people still want to make more money anyway. If you tax development, there will be less development unless it is so fundamentally desirable that it is, you know, impossible to stop. But it's not. Like, it's obvious that these things have a chilling effect. Number two, the benefits of a policy should be analyzed and the people who benefit from said policy should pay for the implementation of that policy. So I think we have to decide whether or not growth benefits people who are already in a place. Is stagnation good? That is an open question, and I think that Colleen Hardwick would have a different answer than I would on this. And I am pleased that Vancouver kind of fundamentally rejected her party's ideas in the last election and their implications, but I don't think they fully embraced the the counter argument or, or the, the reverse of that, which is that growth in and of itself benefits everyone who is in the region, a dynamic and growing community is good end that benefits not only the people who can move, but rather all the citizens of a place. Those people who are already here, those property owners, are going to see increased property values, both from the prospect of selling their their house to allow for this growth, and also the ancillary benefits of the growth. Better restaurants, more community, uh, tax base that is able to support them when they grow old. Why should only the people who are moving to a place 
pay for and and really it's the developers but like that cost is going to get p passed on why should only those people pay for the growth that is required to improve the whole community and the political answer to that is those people don't exist yet and so they don't have votes that's just it but yeah and that's a stupid argument because it denies the voters who are actually in a place the benefits of a good policy because it actually like it means that the policy doesn't get implemented we are not going to implement growth policies if we make growth too expensive by making the people who are moving to a place bear the entire cost of the growth so one of the possible solutions here is this was spotted and announced ironically on the day that federal housing minister sean fraser was set to announce that the cities of burnaby and surrey were doing so great on the housing targets that the federal government wants to be seeing that they were going to get checks from the housing accelerator fund they pointed specifically to recent news that burnaby had approved laneway houses and has been improving development around transit facilities and has been looking to through its housing plan increase density and surrey similarly has put housing around transit facilities and has been densifying in a number of key neighborhoods and so that was great news for both of those cities we've seen elsewhere in the country the housing minister require cities like the city of london ontario and calgary to actually come through with new policies and so this was mm -hmm. like quick wins for those two but because this fee was announced the same day he went that seems counterproductive to what we have here with this program that the federal government has basically just used as a lever to force municipalities to behave because that's the best thing the federal government can actually do. And I'm not even being sarcastic. They have a lot of money and they can just use that to buy provinces or municipalities into compliance with healthcare, with childcare, with housing. And so he said, yeah, we're cooperative not federalism. That is like yeah. the definition of cooperative federalism. That's how Canada uh, works. <laughs> And so, yes, when it works, <laughs> yeah, there, the, you know, Ottawa's unhappy with these fees from Metro Van, and we kind of left it there. It's see, the province is also unhappy. Uh, I think the opposition, the BC United, announced they would force these fee increases to be cancelled. They didn't say how they would fix the problem of not having money to build critical infrastructure for the region. And I think that's the missing question, is you're either going to say this has to be passed on to property taxpayers, which is a reasonable position, but in, you know, no one's, no politician right now is going to be like, I'm putting 100% of that on the back of property taxpayers. So where is the province or federal government coming in with the check to basically pay off the fuck up that was the North Shore project that I talked about? Yeah, I, and I mean, like, maybe nationalized Asiona? I don't know. It, it's it's difficult to... like. Oh man, the federal government could do so well if it actually just owned an engineering firm and stopped getting fleeced by SNC-Lavalin and Asiona. And, and Bombardier and Asiona and like maybe we should just build the fucking thing instead of like allowing the former president of Via Rail to like launch a slow rail campaign that will... I fucking hate... I fucking hate where we build in this country. We're like... We... This this was like the one thing that we were good at, and we just like we saw a landmass that had recently been devastated by plague, and we're like, mm, we can take that, and did, and then we built a lot of stuff on it, and like you know, we 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 reached for greatness in a kind of like horrifying way, but like we did it, and. Now, it just seems like we, we just, like, can't find our ass with both hands. Like, what is happening? Well, one of the people who was on the Metro Van board that made this decision was Burnaby Mayor Mike Hurley, and I talked about them moving forward on laneway housing in the city, which is great for them. It's nice to be a decade behind Vancouver, or more, actually. Vancouver's had laneway housing for a long time and just only 
I don't think Vancouver can criticize Burnaby on the housing front. Like, no. You know. What's happened in Burnaby is, I think we mentioned they were looking at moving their city hall to Metrotown. They have nixed that plan, saying it would be too expensive and it would piss off the rich people on the north side of Burnaby. So they are going to keep their city hall in the geographic center of the city where nothing is by Deer Lake. They may have to build yes. a new city hall in a few years at a very expensive, ridiculous cost, but at least it will satisfy no one. I feel like it's very frustrating is this becoming my my like catchphrase entirely unintentionally because like that's what Vancouver politics is. It's just frustration after frustration after frustration. There's a lack of vision a lack of like long ability to do long term planning, a lack of, a lack of ability to like appropriately weigh costs and benefits of like policies in the long term, and a lack of ability to say no to people whose narrow parochial interests, uh, like being shouted so loudly at them that these weak-willed politicians cannot muster up the courage to do the right fucking thing. Speaking of city councils and city halls, Councillor Haven Lerbiecki in Port Moody is questioning whether a city council meeting happened in violation of the community charter. She is alleging that because a number of councillors took a tour of Coronation Park proposals uh, from the developer West Group that this counted an improper city council meeting because they had quorum by the fact there was enough of them there for that and maybe they were discussing some city business and should they be slapped on the wrist of this for this? This follows a... No! No. <laughs> the answer is no. Like, I... I originally, when you told me about this, because as I mentioned earlier, I did not mean to do my homework, so I had to be walked through our show notes today, is was that, oh, maybe maybe this was like some improper lobbying that they weren't supposed to be doing, and they should have like made sure that either all of council was there or something, something. I, I don't think that there's like a... It wasn't like they paid for a vacation. It's They, they took a tour of a planned construction site like they they weren't being given like rolex watches in brown envelopes but that was not it at all it was that did this constitute a secret meeting and the answer of course is no are four counselors ever allowed to show up in a place and talk about work there like, there is actually a ombudsperson report from 2012 that Put some of the factors to determine whether a gathering is actually a meeting. What are those factors? Do they have quorum? Does it take place at the council's normal meeting place or in a place completely under control of the council? Is it regularly scheduled? Are formal procedures followed? And did they hold votes on things that would normally form council business? So would, yes, no, no, no. What the fuck are we talking about here? And it's less likely to be considered a meeting if... It's not in a place the council controls, or it's not regularly scheduled, and so forth. Kind of the reverse of all the top ones. So this Tri-City news piece is like, it doesn't say how many have to be in place to determine whether it's a gathering or a meeting. But it's like, there's like maybe one or two of these points that are like the least important, arguably, to calling it a meeting. Yeah. So... It's ridiculous. This comes as part of like a very extended debate in the city of Port Moody over whether to approve this Coronation Park development that is along the Lowheat Highway by the Inlet Skytrain Station, I believe. During these debates, Councillor Lerbeike, apologies, has been one of the strongest criticisms. Her fiancé even wrote in to complain about this. Her fiancé being the local MLA Rick Glumack of the BC NDP. Sorry, her fiancé complained against her? No, complained against the city developing it. Took her side. Oh, Lord. Okay. I kind of, I can kind of imagine how that conversation went at home, but who knows? And so now there are questions from the mayor wondering whether the premier thinks this is appropriate for his caucus members to be anti-housing, frankly. Yeah, yeah it might, might, might you know, cause some head scratching over in the, the premier's annex. This episode might leave you thinking that politics in Metro Vancouver is just a disgusting swamp, but that of course would be wrong. 
because it would be very unfair to swamps. Every episode of the report, we end with a Vancouverada. Vancouver's beloved local swamp, Burns Bog. This lovely bog that is just down there in Delta is a mere 3,000 years old, Matthew. 3,000 years old, and it has been named for the, you know, historic indigenous op... Oh, wait, no, sorry. It's a European who bought it and turned it into a ranch less than 200 years ago. So, Burns Bog is a ombotrophic peat bog located in Delta. Canada, incidentally, has some of the largest peat reserves in the world. It was originally 4,000 to 49 hectares in area before development, and currently 3,500 acres remain of the bog. Over 300 plant and animal species live in the area, including 175 bird species, many of which are endangered. Also, bogs are great. Like, wetlands are incredibly good at storing carbon, filtering water, preventing flooding, maintaining cool temperatures, which may be important in climate change, making sure that water exists in an area, which may be important during climate change, and is are all around great. They're wet, acidic, and peat forming. I don't understand why Canadian whist like, so I'm just gonna digress a moment here. I don't understand why the nation that has the most peat in the world, possibly a majority of the world's peat, does not, we make, we are one of the four great whiskey nations and we don't use it to like a resource that is fundamentally Canadian, like, Canadian, if you, Canada, peat is Canadian. Most of the world's peat is Canadian. We should be using some of it to make our whiskey. We have used Burns Bog for uh, a lot of different things, including fuel, including hunting, and of course the natural benefits to bogs, which have been very thoroughly underappreciated by societies. Don't don't forget that we put the landfill there. Oh yeah. Yeah, because what what could be better than this incredibly, like, incredibly naturally occurring water filtration system than a giant pile of garbage? If you want to go visit Delta Bog or Burns Bog, most of it is closed off for conservation reasons, but there is a small area at the Delta Nature Reserve that you can go visit and get a glimpse of the bog's lag zone. What, what's the moat. The, the moat. It's the transition between peat bog and the external ecosystem. It's crucial sounds... to bog survival. Yes. Well, that brings us to an end of another episode of the Cambi Report. Thank you so much for joining us. Listen to us next week, you $1,000 subscribers. Otherwise, see you again shortly. For Legged Boot Media, I'm Matthew Naylor. And I'm Ian Bushfield. Good afternoon.